Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for April 27th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient constitutional and appellate law questions. As ever, as spring inches towards summer, U.S. Supreme Court storylines begin commanding the attention of the country's court watchers as the latest term winds up, and last week, SCOTUS's newest member, Neil Gorsuch, was central in a surprising plot turn as the President Trump-nominated judge defected from the bench's more conservative cohort to decide an immigration appeal in favor of a non-citizen challenging his removal. Gorsuch and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor deemed the statute that, in the Board of Immigration Appeals opinion anyways, consigned the challenger to deportation as too vague to be constitutional, Reaction across the legal and political world mixed surprise, consternation, and delight. Some right-of-center commentators questioned whether Gorsuch's conservative bona fides were oversold during last year's confirmation process. Others assured that his move was only a canny gambit to begin working to turn back Chevron deference and pare back the administrative state. Some viewed the judge's concurrence as another example of his consistent strain of originalism, while others saw it as evidence Gorsuch might be a less predictable judge than previously thought and perhaps amenable to siding with his more liberal colleagues in future cases this term. Today's show features the reactions of three legal scholars and commentators whose thoughts on Gorsuch's sortie with the court's liberal block and their views on what it portends are, are all somewhat different. We're joined by Professor John McGinnis from Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, then by Mark Pulliam, longtime partner with Latham and Watkins in San Diego, and finally by Professor Eric Siegel from Georgia State University College of the Law. Professor McGinnis used Gorsuch's concurrence as a polished exposition of his principles as a sophisticated modern originalist, as McGinnis puts it. Meanwhile, Mr. Pulliam writes that any right-of-center plaudits for Gorsuch's opinion tend to understate the worry that he has become a, a wobbly, potential swing justice. And Professor Siegel sees Gorsuch's inclination and approach as signaling his potential to again join the court's left side, perhaps in the very salient case of this term involving public unions. Before hearing from our guest, though, just a quick reminder that California CLE credit is available to listeners of the podcast, and also that as of just a couple of weeks ago, our show can be found and listened to on the podcast app. Just search the name of the show, Weekly Appellate Report, or Daily Journal, and via either avenue, you should be able to find us. Here, then, is our first guest. He's the George C. Dix Professor of Constitutional Law at Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, formerly was the Deputy Assistant Attorney General with the Office of Legal Counsel in Washington, D.C., and is the author of the book Originalism and the Good Constitution. He's Professor John McGinnis. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. So um, on the Liberty Law site, you you, you penned a, a piece reacting and, and sort of unpacking Justice Neil Gorsuch's opinion last week in the Sessions versus DeMaia case. It's gotten a lot of attention um, in, in some ways uh, that you think sort of missed the point. There has been quite a bit of reaction, some surprise, some delight, some consternation, depending on your political point of view about um, Justice Gorsuch voting and, and, and making a decisive vote with the court's former liberal justices in this immigration law case. I believe the president himself voiced some displeasure at it. But you say sort of looking through that prism, you know, who Justice Gorsuch is, is voting with liberals as opposed to conservatives kind of misses 
the more sub- substantive point of, or, the, or really the substance of this his opinion, which is one that gives importantly folks insight into uh-huh. into his originalism. I think very much so. I mean, the one difficulty, which is often news reporters comment on justices as if they're politicians in robes. It's actually a in the academic world, something called the attitudinal model actually tries to predict them just as if they were politicians who are voting the way their political masters would have wanted them. I think that misunderstands the judicial function, and quite apart from interest in results, judges have interest in methodology and following the law and the way they think the law should be interpreted, and that can be quite, can can reach results that might not be pleasing to the political side that appoints them. And I think uh, this was an excellent example of that. Okay, so if kind of wondering whether Neil Gorsuch is more liberal than we thought as a, as a, a facile approach to, to, to looking at this opinion, let's, let's take the, the more rigorous one, the, the look at his uh, style of originalism. And particularly in this opinion, um, it, it invokes and, and deals with the due process clause. You write that Gorsuch's approach, his, his principles require or they um, they inform his view that the the clause should be viewed sort of in a legal and not ordinary sense to get a legal reading. What, what do you mean by that and why is that important? Okay. Well, it's very important, I think, because uh, originalism is the idea that you should read the Constitution is it was understood at the time the clause was enacted. And this clause, of course, was enacted uh, as uh, part of the Bill of Rights in 1791. But then you have another question. Well, what does, that, what does it mean to, re, uh, to read it in that understanding? Due process is a classic example of a word that might have a kind of ordinary meaning, a fair procedure, which seems somewhat vague. But it also uh, turns out, and this is, the core of uh, Justice Gorsuch's argument, it has a legal meaning. It meant that there were a certain number of procedures at really at common law that freemen in England were um, uh, enjoyed and that were due them. That's a reading that uh, understands the Constitution as a legal document uh, and one that looks at it often in the background of to English uh, legal history. And the importance of that is that also that often gives a much more determinate meaning to the Constitution. I mean, what fair what what fair procedures are, which might be an ordinary meaning, is very unclear. Uh, uh, but here we have a sense, and one of those requirements is that one be given a, a notice uh, sufficient that one can uh, align one's conduct to the law. And so that's the second proposition that he finds here, and he, he extracts that from the due process clause by way of that legal reading. Okay, and is that decisive in that the, the fair notice is not provided here by the, the statute that was under review? Yes, well, the, the statute uh, under review, I won't go into the, the sure. details of it, was a uh, uh, you could be uh, deported if uh, you were convicted of a crime uh, that created, I think, the answer was a substantial risk of violence. And it was quite unclear what that meant. It's also unclear whether that was, uh, whether that was the, a general kind of crime or your particular crime. They actually read it uh, so long as the crime in its uh, general contours could lead to violence. Uh, that was the government's uh, position. So 
Gorsuch argues that that really isn't sufficient notice. Now, I'm not really going to, and I really don't discuss, is, is if you write in applying this to this particular case, I'm not as concerned with that as the general principle outlined, the way he understands the Constitution. I think it shows that he's going to be a pretty serious originalist and a serious originalist to look at all the materials uh, including legal materials that might not be available to, uh, to to an ordinary reader of the Constitution. Okay. Uh, in addition to, to ideas and notions of, of due process, as they existed at the time of the Constitution's enactment, uh, you also say there's some separation of powers considerations that are layered on here. How does that fit into the originalist uh, style of Gorsuch? Well, I think it's the other aspect, which is interesting, uh, of his opinion. He really, uh, one way of understanding uh, a legal reading of the Constitution is not only to apply the legal understanding of terms, but to imply legal interpretive rules. And he does two kinds of legal interpretive rules in this opinion. One, he says, well, let's look at this with respect to some of the other provisions of the Constitution. A lot of the other provisions, getting a lawyer at trial, for instance, wouldn't make a lot of sense unless you had a clear notice. It wouldn't help you much. So, in other words, so, so you read the Constitution holistically in light of some of the other provisions if things are ambiguous. If it's not a little, you know, a lot, not absolutely clear whether that you should read due process in this way, we can be helped by looking at other provisions and their meaning at the time. And then the separation of powers is a basic structure of the Constitution that tells us that the legislature is responsible for making uh, decisions about the content of laws. And the problem, of course, with vague laws is it leaves it up to the judiciary. And so that's another principle uh, which reinforces uh, a reading he already has come to by looking at English law. So that's also, I think, interesting. It suggests the kind of richness of originalism uh, both by looking at legal meanings and looking at legal interpretive rules. I, I suggest, uh, for instance, the separation of powers rules is a rule that was understood at the time. In other words, you should look at provisions in uh, constitutions. Of course, there were state constitutions at the time as well, in light of their structure. And so I think he's doing what I call in some of my writings a sort of using an original method of how to interpret the Constitution to fix its meaning. You also cite some some general lessons that, that folks can pull out of this opinion about originalism. I guess the most obvious one that we've spoken about a bit is that the idea of originalism doesn't always compel a justice to vote in the way that attitudinal model might suggest here. You, you, you might presume that Justice Gorsuch policy-wise might think the case could have come out the other way, maybe, maybe not, but that originalism would compel his vote, uh, perhaps the opposite Direction. So is that maybe the the top line takeaway from this? Yes, I think that's the top line. It follows up uh, on, of course, Justice Scalia, who often uh, voted uh, quite aggressively uh, in favor of criminal defendants. Uh, the attitudinal model being saying he's a Republican justice, he would vote against criminal defendants. And at least on certain kinds of cases, the Confrontation Clause, for instance, he had a very broad understanding that benefited criminal defendants, but that was because of his reading of the clause as it was originally understood. And so so I think he's, he, Gorsuch is in some sense following in Scalia's footsteps and telling us the same lesson that we've heard before, but... <laughs> But <laughs> journalists often don't don't uh, don't get. Sure, yeah, it's a bit more of a nuanced uh, story to to write. 
I suppose a couple of the the lesser obvious lessons that you also write about in, in your piece, one of them being that, you know, folks might have the intuition that originalism would recommend and, and create some pretty clear, bright line sort of rules as you're sort of setting aside really everything that's sort of come since the Constitution's enactment, that things could be clearer. But, but here's an example where maybe Gorsuch's approach does not create the, the most uh, clear of rule. There, here there is legislation that bears on the situation at hand, but um, as he writes, it's not clear enough. And the standard that is is put forth by him isn't a particularly clear one. Because what is clear enough may not, and not itself be is uh, uh, very clear, and that's right. I mean, the uh, argument that for originalism isn't an argument for clear rules uh, that may sometimes have clear rules, but it's not always going to generate clear rules. And a commitment to originalism means that necessarily one's going to prioritize following the original meaning, if in, even if it forces judges to do some more, um, some things that might seem to the outsider, at least to employ more judgment in interpreting, in, in, the, in applying the Constitution. For instance, in this case, if you just had a rule that due process meant that the legislature had passed the law, which is a possible reading of due process, that'd be a very clear rule. You just go and figure out, well, did the legislature actually pass the law? And then you get due process, but Gorsuch does, does, rejects that idea. Okay, and then one other one, um, one other lesson that you could pull out also seems a, a bit counterintuitive, at least for some folks who might believe that originalism tends to kind of reliably recommend one outcome. Of course, here we have two professed originalists on opposite sides of the decision, Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch. Um, and so I, I suppose that is a, a stark illustration that originalism doesn't always mean the same thing for everyone and get you to the same result. Right, I think that is. Uh, and, uh, you know, some people defended originalism on the idea that it's it's much more likely to reach people are more likely to converge. Now, that might still be true. I mean, obviously, with one case is not a great data set, but it certainly doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. And uh, I, I tend to think that uh, originalism, because at least uh, invokes empirical facts, just in, as a sort of scientific matter, may uh, lead people to converge in a way that than, than more they're looking at their own values. But uh, it's not going to be inevitable, and in this case it underscores that. Just one more sort of on the difference between Clarence Thomas's and North Neil Gorsuch's writing. Uh, how does this opinion or uh, this decision sort of uh, stake out their their differences as to this approach? I know uh, Clarence Thomas had some took some issue with the idea that the void for vagueness doctrine could be invoked by someone who seemed to be in fact. He would be inside of it. If, if well, it's it clear. In other words, in other words to, and I'm not no confident, and I'm not actually, the point of this post wasn't to say that, that Gorsuch was right. I'm actually quite, and I, as an originalist, I'd want to study this more before actually, at least on that issue, there were some other differences between uh, Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch coming down strongly. I mean, I think the argument for Justice Thomas in this respect is that just that, what that almost all challenges to laws I think at the time were as applied. In other words, you only could bring the challenge if the laws applied to you was unconstitutional. We have a few areas where you can bring facial challenges. The First Amendment comes to mind. I don't think that was generally prevalent back then. I, 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 so I, I think that's a serious challenge, and I'm not entirely sure Gorsuch 
deals with that uh, to the extent that I, I would like to. I mean, I'm not sure how that would relate to the result in this case, but the question is, let me just try to make, illustrate this by saying that, well, you might have uh, something that was vague, and so the outer limits of the provision was unclear, but surely everyone would agree that certain conduct came within the provision, and should that be held to be unconstitutional? I'm not sure why, and so uh, I do think there's a serious issue that I'm, I'm not, I have not yet resolved in my mind. Uh, that's one of the differences between Thomas and, uh, and, and Gorsuch. Even if you agree that there's a um, requirement of fair notice, well, does that mean the requirement of fair notice has to be that you can take advantage if some people were confused by this, who, would other, who might be uh, challenged in the statute, or do you have to show that you yourself wouldn't have fair notice because uh, under uh, under even a um, even a, a view of what the core of the statute is, you wouldn't have understood it. So, so that's an interesting question. We may we may see that resolved in the future. Yeah, on, on that point, that's the same way that overbreadth challenges are also treated, right? Someone that was uh, sort of at the center of a statute's penalty or designed prohibition could still challenge a law successfully because other folks that it would reach in an overbroad way could challenge it. Right. Right. That is exactly like that, as I would say. That's not always the way the law works, uh, I think, for obvious reasons. In some sense, I think that is a more modest judicial role, that, that we're not going to apply the law, uh, but only insofar as you can show that there was some problem with you, not with someone else. Now, as I say, in the First Amendment area, I think the concern is that we allow people to bring such actions uh, and uh, in some sense on behalf of others because they are able to uh, say, well, someone might have been hurt, harmed in their free speech by this overbroad uh, understanding of the statute. Uh, but that, I think, is because of we, we really are very wary of chilling speech. I'm not sure we have the same kind of concern about chilling the kind of conduct that issue in this case. So I'm, I'm, I'm uh, at least dubitante on whether Gorsuch is right in this respect. Okay, uh, you know, one shorthand in response to this opinion is that Judge Gorsuch joins the the liberal block. Of course, as you you spend some time on in your piece, there is a bit of daylight between his take and the the four liberal justice take. Um, he wrote a separate concurrence. What what is that daylight? How is his approach different from from theirs? Well, I, I think the most important difference going forward is, uh, and I think it's also characteristic methodologically different. Liberal justices, if I might, or the four the plurality, let me call them that, really say, well, at least in this context, we should apply the uh, vagueness doctrine, because it's really very harsh what could happen to someone they'd be deported. And uh, I think Gorsuch is very wary of that, because I think his view is that, well, if due process, if you deserve notice of, of before the government's going to do something to you, uh, we really shouldn't make these kinds of distinctions. There's really not a lot of basis to make these distinctions other than our sort of ad hoc or balancing test. So uh, the interesting question would come up in a case where, say, a uh, EPA statute were similarly vague, and you were fined a lot of money. Would the plurality think, well, that's all right because you're not being deported? I think Gorsuch is saying, well, he doesn't really see a difference there. I think that tends to follow from his interpretation of the law. And I would tend to think 
that even if we don't always we don't get clear rules for originalism, I don't think many areas, as at least as an empirical matter, originalism call for judges to do these kind of balancing tests, which are very familiar in modern non-originalist jurisprudence. So I think that's quite an important difference between the plurality and and Gorsuch that might well have a decisive difference in a case that came up in a non-immigration context. Yeah, the difference does seem like it would be important in, in, in cases going forward that I think some commentators have identified as, you know, Justice Gorsuch deconstruct the administrative state to, to some extent. Well, again, I want to push back a little on that. I mean, I, I don't think that, I mean, I certainly hope it's not his aim to deconstruct <laughs> the administrative state. It's his, his idea is to, is to follow the original meaning of the Constitution, at least where precedent is, is, is not um, the other way. I mean, of course, in many areas, uh, may well be that some aspects of the administrative state are protected by precedent. I think here he's suggesting that, well, maybe this area is not uh, so clearly uh protected, and he thinks we should follow the original meaning of the Constitution, even if it's going to have some consequences for the administrative state. I think he, you know, obviously the administrative state could respond <laughs> by having clearer regulation. Okay. I mean, maybe just one, one last one. Um, I know we started off the conversation saying sort of politically themed conjecture uh, tends to miss the point, but um, in terms of just areas of policy where you think Justice Gorsuch's style of originalism might cause him to, to vote in ways that might be unexpected. Do you have any other sorts of thoughts like in the way that Justice Scalia would tend to, to vote uh, differently with uh, in terms of criminal justice appeals? Uh, well, I, I tend to think that will be an area uh, that might be uh, surprising. But one of the interesting things about, uh, uh, I think, originalism is that there's now a tremendous amount of work being done in the academy on originalism, and that will that kind of transmission belt will come to the justices and justices who want to use it will, I think, in that sense, become less ideologically uh, predictable because I do think that uh, scholars are pretty uh, originalist scholars. That's not their highest. They're, they're particularly not susceptible to. Uh, ideology, at least in the the way they are going to look at the evidence, because otherwise you know, they're, they're subject to pretty harsh critique by their colleagues. So I think the availability of the fruits of the scholarship, I think, is likely to mean that any judge who's an originalist is almost necessarily somewhat less ideologically predictable. Uh, I, I, so it's hard for me to predict uh, the areas in which they're going to be unpredictable precisely because of that. I guess we'll just have to, to stay tuned for what's sure to be a pretty interesting next couple of months out of the Supreme Court. Um, for now, Professor John McGinnis from Northwestern's Pritzker School of Law, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I very much enjoyed it. Mark Pulliam was a longtime partner with Latham and Watkins in San Diego. He writes widely on legal issues, including in the pages of National Review and the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Pulliam, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Happy to be here. So after last week's ruling in the Sessions versus Demaya case, wherein Justice Gorsuch decided the case in favor of a immigrant who had been deemed removable by the Board of Immigration Appeals after having committed 
I can't remember if it was first or second degree burglary in California. You wrote a piece at the American Greatness blog positing the question, has Gorsuch gone wobbly? Um, I guess, how exactly do, do you mean that? And, uh, and by your view, has he gone wobbly? Well, the court consists of two opposing blocks. You have uh, four what I would call committed liberals, and then you have a block of conservatives. Uh, Kennedy, not always part of that block, but Scalia certainly was. And people widely assumed, uh, based on all the vetting that went into selecting uh, Justice Gorsuch, that he would be uh, an heir in the mold of Scalia. And when this case, which had previously deadlocked four to four in Scalia's absence, was re-argued and decided last week, I, you know, I was surprised to see Gorsuch, even in a case that was clear enough that Kennedy joined with the conservatives, that Gorsuch did not. And the fact that he got into a argument over originalism with you know, Clarence Thomas, who is usually regarded as uh, the supreme originalist, uh, struck me as odd. And, you know, upon reading Gorsuch's separate concurring opinion, there are things in there that weren't part of the general press coverage, you know, a footnote in particular where he expresses uh, skepticism that, uh, non-citizen foreign nationals would not be entitled to due process in uh, deportation proceedings, which uh, is a pretty remarkable holding. Striking down an immigration statute at all is something that's uh, unusual, very unusual. So this was sort of packaged by some of the commentators as just a, a routine extension of the Johnson case from 2015 in which Scalia had held a criminal statute was uh, void for vagueness. But there's a huge difference between the due process obligations inherent in enacting criminal sanctions to which uh, citizens are subject and defining circumstances in which a, a non-citizen can be deported, uh, as to which traditionally the court has accorded great deference to uh, the executive and to uh, the uh, legislature. So it was a, a certainly an odd alignment. And I guess the, what the question remains, is this, you know, is this a, is Gorsuch in a relationship with the liberals or was this just a one night stand? <laughs> I certainly hope it was a one night stand. Sure. Uh, speaking of the, the sort of split between Justice Gorsuch and, and Thomas, in your piece, you, you cite to or describe a sort of new originalism that perhaps Gorsuch bears that differentiates his approach, in this case at least, from Thomas's. What, what do you mean by that uh, new originalism? Well, people who have been following constitutional law and constitutional theory, certainly since the 70s and you know, definitely in the 80s and 90s, can remember that there was a, a struggle between people, theorists who, who used to acknowledge that they were non-interpretivists. These were the generation who explicitly embraced the living Constitution. And Robert Bork kind of uh, rolled in and uh, pointed out that this was uh, illegitimate, that 
decisions that aren't based on the Constitution really have no moral authority. And uh, he created originalism. Uh, Scalia adopted it. It became sort of the rallying cry for the Federalist Society and the whole conservative legal movement. Since Bork died, and uh, and now that Scalia has passed as well, uh, the torch seems to have been passed to this current generation of constitutional scholars who are uncomfortable with the restraint uh, that uh, Bork and, uh, to a lesser extent, Scalia advocated. And they believe that originalism authorizes judges to come up with any type of ruling that you can find a historical basis for. The problem is digging deeply into history and finding a shred here or there is like reading tea leaves. And so what this non-restrained originalism, which is what I'm referring to as the new originalism, uh, some people believe is just living constitutionalism with a different name, that it basically it authorizes judges and constitutional theorists to come up with whatever type of policy outcome that they find congenial, and then you come up with a historical case for it. And let's face it, law professors and judges are not trained historians, and a lot of what they find compelling history is not really uh, compelling history. So the other factor here with the new originalism is um, there's a new generation of legal scholars who are uh, you know, tend to be libertarians who they believe that Bork's and Scalia's restraint is uh, is wrong and that originalism requires uh, a more active judicial role, which they call judicial engagement. And some of the commentators on the right who were most enthusiastically praising Gorsuch's concurring opinion are associated with this judicial engagement camp, which uh, gives me additional concern that Gorsuch is, you know, they have Gorsuch's ear. Along the lines of judicial engagement, the uh, right of center scholars and commentators that, that were most sanguine about this ruling seem to coalesce around the idea that it's Gorsuch's opening gambit with which or from which position then he could uh, move to you know looking towards uh, striking down vague const uh, congressional statutes that leave base for uh, regulators to fill in the blanks uh, in such a way as to sort of undo Chevron deference and perhaps you know roll back the administrative state and so that makes some of those folks feel like this is maybe not so bad of a, a means joining the liberals for an opinion to set up that sort of end, rolling back the administrative state. Will you say that's sort of an ill-placed belief? No, I, but I agree with the sort of growing unhappiness with Chevron deference. And, and I assumed, that, and one of the reasons I you know, enthusiastically supported Gorsuch's nomination was because he had written some decisions as a lower court judge expressing concerns about Chevron deference. But that sort of rests on, to my mind, a different set of constitutional principles. That's a separation of powers. That's non-delegation. Uh, that, to me, is a lot more clearly 
tied to the text of the Constitution than invalidating an immigration statute, uh, you know, uh, on the grounds that it's too vague, where, you know, the Constitution does not refer to vagueness. That, and, and putting that on the words due process, where I think it's a particularly weak vehicle for that holding. So I agree with the judicial engagement crowd, the libertarians, I'm on board with certain of their policy goals constraining the administrative state. It's how you do it. You know, that's, that's the whole ball game with judges is, you know, what techniques do they use to interpret the constitution? And I found Gorsuch's opinion was, was pretty loosey goosey here. And whereas that may increase the likelihood that he will be equally aggressive when it comes to Chevron deference. It sort of indicates he may be equally aggressive in a lot of other areas too. And, uh, you know, I guess that's, that's what concerns me is that once you get off the path and adopt a certain uh, framework, you know, that can be a pretty good indication of, you know, the course that you, uh, you know, you intend to take. And this soon out of the gates, he's been on the court only a year for him to be abandoning the, the, the conservative block and joining with the liberals to me, you know, raised some red flags. And that's why I wrote the post going wobbly. It was a kind of a provocative uh, way to frame it. But I, I, I certainly think it's something that people uh, ought to be paying close attention to going forward. Are as many red flags or is, is the is the concern as pronounced as perhaps rolling back a, a couple of decades, the worry as Justice Souter tended to shift over from being a conservative appointee to voting pretty consistently with a liberal bloc? That's, the concern isn't that pronounced, at least at this point, is it? Well, I'm not sure Souter ever started out as a conservative. He was assumed to be a conservative, and but he pretty consistently ruled as a, as a liberal. I think, you know, people that have switched over, that, you know, Kennedy kind of started out pretty solidly conservative, and he softened up. Blackman started out as a disciple of Warren Berger, and, you know, he kind of uh, switched sides. So it remains to be seen. Gorsuch is a very smart guy. Uh, he's not going to get snookered by anybody. But the sort of the the point I made in this American greatness piece is sometimes justices can be influenced by audience, external audiences who are in effect blowing them kisses. And uh, Gorsuch has been blown a lot of kisses by a particular crowd. And I hope that he doesn't, you know, sort of uh, become infatuated with that. You know, when George Will is ooing and eyeing, uh, that can go to your head, and uh, I hope it doesn't go to his head. Sure. Yeah, I think he, George will describe this uh, opinion as a momentous one and, and excellent, and certainly seemed to be be a fan. Maybe one last one: if you think that a decision like this might signal Gorsuch being less tethered to sort of maybe core right of center conservative ideologies, and in what maybe subject matter areas of law might that? sort of unpredictability most likely manifest? Do you think there are cases this term or just types of cases where you might become more worried about um, where Gorsuch might come down? Well, the whole, um, the whole category of immigration cases that uh, uh, treating this case the same as a 
criminal statute, notwithstanding the fact that it's an immigration statute and it deals with deportation, which is a civil proceeding that traditionally, uh, you know, deporting uh, foreign nationals has not been regarded as the same as imprisonment. He, he made a comment in his uh, concurring opinion seeming to brush away the distinction between civil and criminal that you know the government has very strong powers and if it deprives people of any rights even uh, you know in a civil proceeding that that's entitled to due process those kinds of uh, of postures can have far-reaching consequences you know just like the warren court when it said that welfare benefits and other types of government benefits that uh, you, you could have a property right in them well, when you start recognizing that things trigger due process, you know, that creates, uh, you know, const, you know, constitutional barriers to the government doing things. And, and uh, so that could be very consequential. And I, I guess this soon, it's hard to say where else it will go. I think it certainly shows that he's independent minded that he's not tethered to precedent, and uh, certainly the people who are rooting for a, a pairing back of Chevron deference uh, would find nothing in Gorsuch's mm. opinion that would uh, dissuade them from that. Okay. Yeah, I know uh, folks really of all uh, persuasions and ideologies are, are curious to keep watching to see whether your your question, whether Gorsuch has gone wobbly, is uh, which way it gets answered. Uh, we'll leave it there for now, Mark. The, I'm sorry. The, the real test, the real the real test case will be Janice, the, uh, the public uh, employee dues case, which was another four to four deadlock where Gorsuch is stepping into Scalia's shoes. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as you say, perhaps he's not uh, terribly tethered to, to precedent in that instance. It could recommend or suggest that he might be less compelled by the, the precedent there, Abood, to, to uh, continue the same um, precedent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll certainly find out soon enough. Mark Pulliam former partner with Latham Watkins. Thanks for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Sure. Eric Siegel is the Kathy and Lawrence Ash, professor of law at Georgia State University College of Law. He's a very prolific commentator on constitutional law and the Supreme Court. Professor Siegel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. So you wrote a piece last week on Michael Dorff's law blog that the sort of the central theme of which is a, a counter argument against the notion that co- uh, courts and, and judges and particularly Supreme Court justices are sort of bloodless legal robots that that mechanically apply doctrine to facts and, and that in fact they are human beings with with uh, you know emotions and thoughts that extend beyond the judicial realm and so you say that those sorts of, of emotions and variables that are outside of law and, and pure legal analysis might occasionally prompt surprising votes or surprising opinions. And that idea was a introduction to your thought that Justice Neil Gorsuch might, before the end of the term, cast a, a surprising vote in, in, a, in, a, in a major Supreme Court case this term. As it turns out, maybe just a couple hours after your, your post went up, he, he, he did that in a, in, in a uh, ruling last week in the Sessions versus DeMaia case, the immigration ruling. Um, I th- well, I don't think, let me, let me just interrupt for one second. Sure. That case, I wouldn't call it, a ma- I mean, I'm not saying it's not an important case. It's an important case. When I said major case, I mean one of the top, you know, the travel ban or the masterpiece 
um, case involving the Colorado Baker or the public sector union fees case, which has enormous implications, or the abortion case out of San Francisco. The DiMaio case is important, but it's not going to change anyone's opinion really about anything. Okay. Then maybe just two two of those sort of non-legal factors that bear on judicial decision-making. What are they in terms of, I guess, particularly Justice Neil Gorsuch, or maybe more generally, uh, what's your conception of what those non-legal factors are? Well, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, (laughs) and don't pretend to be one, but um, I have been in and out of the law for 30 years. Um, So let's take the the case I'm talking about, the, the Janus case, which involves 23 states that require uh, public sector employees who don't join unions to nevertheless pay a fee, a mandatory fee, for the work the union does in collective bargaining for their better wages and better work conditions. The unions cannot spend that money on political causes like presidents and senators, but but these non-union members object to paying a fee since they're not members of the union. And in 1977, the Supreme Court upheld it and said that and unanimously upheld it, said there's no First Amendment problem there. Um, I don't think there's a First Amendment problem there. Eugene Volokh, who's the leading free speech lawyer in the country, probably doesn't think there's a free speech problem. But anyway, Justices Alito and Kennedy have been trying to overturn that case for years. And the term Scalia passed away, they took a case, and it was 4-4 uh, because Scalia, and they would have overturned it during that term. They had the numbers, but Scalia passed away. So they ended up tying 4-4, and, and the case you know, didn't go anywhere. Now it's back again. Now, if you're Justice Gorsuch, there are a lot of questions you have to answer about this case, separate from what he thinks about the law. So first of all, should we overturn a 30-year unanimous case? 30-year unanimous, you know, uh, if I have my math correct there. I'm sorry, 40-year-old yeah. unanimous case. That's one question. And the court has enormous discretion to decide when to overturn and sorry about that, and when not to overturn. Second, as Eugene Volokh has written, there is no good originalist argument to strike down these fees. So the law is, but but I'll concede other people think there is. So the law is unclear. And Gorsuch may well feel strongly about it and say, no, this violates the union's rights. Or he may feel strongly about it and say, it doesn't violate the union's rights. But I doubt either of those things are true. So what might he be thinking about? Well, ever since he joined the court, he has been accused of being a Scalia clone. He has voted with Justice Thomas, I think, in all but two or three cases, and those came in the last couple of weeks. He issued a decision about same-sex marriage that sounded very Scalia-like and very Thomas-like, and people are claiming that he doesn't have a mind of his own separate from Alito and Thomas and, and, and Scalia before he passed away. He could change that entire narrative by voting with the liberals in this case, because this is a hugely watched case. It is very important. 23 states do it this way. There's actually strong states' rights issues here, not that the conservatives will see it that way. But it's a really big public case. And if he did not vote with Thomas and Alito in this case, that's front-page headline New York Times. Gorsuch splits with Alito and Thomas and Roberts, sides with the liberals. That will be a front-page headline. That will change the narrative. Now, he's a human being. Whether he's consciously thinking about that or not, would that maybe play a role in a situation where it's a really close call and there are many ways to decide the case, not just what's the best result, but should we overturn an old case? And he also probably feels or should feel, he's a human being, a little bit funny that this, I think, is the only case that the court still has you know, the same issues, that it had the term Scalia passed away that was 4-4. So he knows that if Merrick Carland had been appointed, 
this case comes out with the liberals, they don't overturn the old case, and he knows that for a fact. So if he votes to go with the conservatives and overturn that case, the, the old case, the Abood case, the only reason that's happening is because Garland is not there and he is. That's a lot of responsibility. And, and maybe he doesn't care, but I'd like to think he does. And if he does, on the, on the, on the, on the, on the very rough edges of decision-making, can we say he's a Vulcan, that's a Star Trek reference, who can just turn his mind off and just apply the law? I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, the, the factors that, that you cite are obviously, you know, sort of non-legal considerations, the potential desire to distinguish one's judicial persona and, you know, thoughts of previous Supreme Court nominations or, or right. failed ones. And, and there is some skepticism about whether or not judges do bring those things to bear and, and, and to whatever extent in making their decisions. But uh, you say... Well, let me ask you a question. Let me, let me interrupt and ask you a question sure. about that. So Justice Roberts not voting to strike down the Affordable Care Act in NFIB, in the very first Obamacare case. And, you know, everybody was shocked that the, that the other four conservatives would have struck down the law in its entirety, and he voted to uphold it. And after that happened, many, many people tried to guess why he did that. We also know he changed his mind in the last minute. Like that's mm-hmm. now something that we know. So many very well-respected scholars and pundits and commentators suggested that maybe one of the reasons Roberts did that was he was nervous about five Republicans overturning a president's signature piece of legislation four months before an election, when it's the first time in history there have been five Republicans, four Democrats, and it's all partisan, and, and Justice Kennedy is more conservative than the most liberal Democrat on the court, and maybe he was looking after the institution of the court long-term. He didn't want to be Chief Justice of Bush versus Gore, too. Are those legal considerations? And I mean, that, that's the illustration that I wanted to, to prompt, is, is that exact example where it, there seems to be more going on behind the curtain than, than in, in front of it, if you're just looking at that opinion. It certainly seems surprising if you're purely thinking about legal terms. It's on all three counts. In my, in my opinion, you got the Commerce Clause argument wrong, the Tax Injunction argument wrong, and the Spending Power argument. Yeah, I mean, legal, and most people, even whatever political side you're on, some people think you got the Commerce Clause thing right, some wrong, some, you know, something to tax, but but no one is happy with all three of those legal results. No one. The conservatives aren't happy with the tax part. The liberals aren't happy with the Commerce Clause part. And maybe that's something Roberts intended. I I also want to say that, and I've written this before, as I think you know, if you're just, if you're John Roberts in 2000, you know, around that time period, and from the moment you became Chief Justice until the day of that case comes out, there's never been a 5-4 case when you joined the liberals. And because of that, in every 5-4 case that's been decided since you started Chief Justice in constitutional law, Justice Kennedy has been the swing vote. And everybody is talking about the Kennedy court. If you go back and look at Newsweek and Time and, and SCOTUS, all that stuff prior to the Affordable Care Act case, it was all about the Kennedy court, the Kennedy court, the Kennedy court. Now, I'm not suggesting and never did suggest that Justice Roberts intentionally, you know, wanted to, you know, change the media's view on the Kennedy court. But but when he is going back and forth in his brain and he is tormented, which I think he probably was, and agonizing over how to vote. And he knows that if he votes with the liberals for the first time ever, the entire narrative of his career changes, which it did, which it does. And it did. How can that not be a factor? 
I mean, honestly. I mean, his entire career, his entire persona changes if he votes with the liberals in that case. Now, maybe he decides not to, whatever, but I don't see how you turn that off. Yeah, as you also write, considerations like that, as ponderous as they get in that circumstance, they still are bounded by sort of the, the legal concerns yes. as well. You would say Chief Justice Roberts thought what he was writing certainly was correct law. He wasn't misapplying it just so he could change his Absolutely, know, and I'm not saying they do that. And I have to say, though, yes, with a, with a, with a footnote, <laughs> in every litigated constitutional law case of the last, let's say, 15 years that I'm aware of, there's almost always two sides. I mean, it's not like, you know, I mean, if you, if reasonable people can disagree on, the only case I can think of where reasonable people can't disagree, ironically, is Shelby County versus Holder, <laughs> which Justice <laughs> Roberts also wrote, because in 1982, 15 years before, or 20 years before that, he voted that he hated the voting rights, he wrote down that he hated the Voting Rights Act, and he still hated the Voting Rights Act. But with that exception, the law isn't so clear that it always, that it generates answers, and these are human beings with life tenure and discretion. Shouldn't we expect them to act like human beings? By the way, I get in trouble saying this all the time. Like most <laughs> law professors yell at me and don't agree with me and think I'm nuts, um, but I still think I'm right. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, that skepticism about how much stock you should put in to the idea that judges' attitudes and emotions go into their judicial decision-making, it always seems like kind of one of those things people might tacitly believe, but it's sort of verboten or a little bit frowned upon to, to say it out loud almost for, for some reason, because it maybe detracts from the idea, the notions of just pure and correct application of law. But you're right that the only cases that get to the Supreme Court are the close ones, and usually you could go either way on just about all of them. Well, and let me, and let me make one addendum to that. You are right when it comes to law professors and Supreme Court commentators. I mean, if I think Adam Liptak is a fantastic reporter. I think Robert Barnes of the Washington Post is a fantastic The Supreme Court bars, the journalists, are really very strong. But if they wrote a piece that said, well, of course the five Republicans voted this way because the GOP feels strongly about this, and this is their political views, and the law had nothing to do with it, boy, would they get in trouble, right? Yeah. Um, even though I have a very strong reason to think they all believe that most of the time. Right, we can't talk about it, but I tell you who can. So there are hundreds, maybe thousands, of political scientists in this country, from Harvard and Yale to, you know, to, to community colleges, right? And it is virtually unanimous, 90% of political scientists who agree with, with how I'm describing the Supreme Court operation. And in their profession, it is verboten not to accept that. In other words, if you don't accept that values drive decisions, if you don't accept that law is only secondarily important and you're a political scientist, you're going to be laughed out of the industry. So it's only law professors who, and Supreme Court journalists who really pretend like this. Okay, That's um, a pretty controversial statement, but I stand by it. <laughs> um, if, if along the lines that you were reasoning in the piece, Neil Gorsuch was sort of looking for a good case, a good opportunity to maybe sort of assert his independence, to differentiate his style from Scalia's, to prove he's not just a reliable right-wing vote, does the fact that he sort of took the opportunity last week, voted with the four more liberal justices on the court. Does it make you think that perhaps this June surprise that you, that you thought uh, might come it might, in fact, be sort of obviated by the fact that he's maybe already asserted that independence in this Dubai right. concurrence? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I don't think that, that case, I'm sure that he knew that case was not going to be, you know, a, a conversation changer. You know, one way of looking at this, Let's assume for the moment that he is 
torn about the law. And by the way, I hope he is. Yeah. And the reason I say that is, regardless of whether you agree or disagree with Eugene Volokh, who is, I think, as I said, the leading First Amendment law professor in the country, that there's no First Amendment violation here. Whether you agree or disagree on that, we do have a unanimous precedent on the books saying it does not. So you have to overturn that case, you know, for the, and we know there are four votes to do it because it was 4-4 two years ago. So we know there are four votes to do it. He's talking to his wife and he says, Darth, this is hard. You know, I, maybe this is unconstitutional, but I just can't overturn it because it's unconstitutional. We have a 30-year-old precedent and the rule of law means something and, and precedent means something. And I'm trying to weigh you know, how much I think this is unconstitutional versus, you know, versus the old precedent versus states who have to change all of their um, union laws if we don't allow them to do this. And 23 states do it. So it's a state's rights issue. And I'm really torn about all of it. And she says to him, boy, it'd be something if you joined the liberals in this big case. It'd be so crazy to think, oh, you know what? I'm on the line anyway. Maybe I'll do that. Mm. I mean, is that so incredible to think? Mm. It's, uh... I don't know. Maybe it is. But I, I, you know, the the law is 50-50, so something else has to decide it. Yeah, yeah, he's certainly not tipping his hand, I think, as as you, as you mentioned in your piece. He, he didn't really, I think, ask one question in oral argument. He's not known to um, be so reticent. He's not like a Clarence Thomas type at oral arguments. So that, that did seem he's a bit opposite. unusual. He's the yeah. opposite of Clarence Thomas, yeah. And by the way, one, one more point about that. Again, from a psychological perspective, and people can say I'm crazy. I don't think Gorsuch feels guilty at all that he took Garland's seat. I don't. I don't think he walks around days, you know, thinking anything. In fact, I don't think he thinks anything about it most of the time. But shouldn't there be, and isn't there likely to be one part of him <laughs> that says, if it were not for the Senate Majority Leader's, you know, completely unprecedented stonewalling of a president's desire to take a Supreme Court justice in his last term, I wouldn't be here. And if there is that iota of kind of I'm not going to call it guilt, that's too strong, but, you know, temperament about it. This is the case. This is the one case where if he votes with the conservatives, liberals can say, without any doubt, we know for a fact this is only the result because there's no merit Because, again, I remind you, this case, the same issue, was before the court, and, the, they, and on the issue of should we overturn the Abood case from 1977, the justices were 4-4. Four, four. And we know which justices. We know the four conservatives would have so, so, so this is the one case where he, instead of Garland, is absolutely the difference. That's a lot of pressure. Okay. Maybe just last one. So you, you did hone in on this particular case, the Janus case, as maybe the, the best opportunity or the perhaps most likely mm-hmm. least opportunity for him to swing over to the liberal side, perhaps. Um, is that because of that sort of added emotional piece there, the, um, well, the Garland consideration, like other, think- other ones? I would like to think it's because there's no plausible originalist argument suggesting that either in 1787 or 1868, anyone thought for one second that the First Amendment would prohibit these kinds of, and this is Volokh's argument, these kinds of union dues. The the union members who are objecting to paying these dues, who get the benefit of the overtime and, and salary and safety conditions the dues generate, they can go out and speak about any political issue they want. They can go out and, and rake their union over the coals. They can go out and, their free speech rights have not been limited. And the, you know, when we pay tax money, the government uses it for all kinds of things you and I disagree with. We don't have a choice about complaining about that. Once the tax money is in, the government can do with it what it wants. I, I think the free speech issues here are extremely weak 
and the originalist arguments are non-existent. So I'd like to think he would vote the right way for originalist reasons, given his self-identification as an originalist. I, I don't have faith in Justice Gorsuch's um, honesty to, to feel that way. But wouldn't that be nice if he came out and said, you know, I don't like these laws. I think they're terrible, but I can't overturn them because the original meaning of the First Amendment doesn't allow me to do so. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> We'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll find out soon enough here as the, the term winds down. But uh, Professor Eric Siegel, appreciate you being on the podcast to, to chat about all these uh, interesting prospects. My pleasure. Thanks. And with that, our program for April 27th is complete. Thanks one more time. Go out to my guests, John McGinnis, Mark Pulliam, and Eric Siegel. Of course, thanks to my production staff here principally Nick Perez, and also our editor, David Houston. Of course, thanks go out to you, our listener, for tuning in. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Don't forget you can find us on iTunes. And don't forget that CLE credit is available for listeners. Just find it. Just find a short true-false test appended to this podcast on our site. Take that, and one hour can be yours. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>